you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and open up to the book of Genesis. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 together this morning. We've taken a break from Genesis for a couple of weeks, just around the holidays, but uh, eager to dive back in this morning. Uh, When I was a senior in high school, I had the opportunity to spend a couple of months uh, in the Philippines. I lived with a missionary family and helped plant a church in Cebu City, Philippines. But uh, just across the way from Cebu City is an island uh, called Leyte Island. And if you go there today in the Philippines, you'll see a statue of General Douglas MacArthur. And uh, some of you maybe seen pictures of that statue, but the statue commemorates <clears throat> MacArthur's uh, famous return to the Philippines uh, to liberate that country from Japanese oppression and rule in World War II. And uh, his return really was the fulfillment of a promise that he had made nearly three years earlier. Uh, Earlier in the war, uh, Japanese forces had begun to close in on the allies there in the Philippines, and um, MacArthur was forced, he was actually ordered to evacuate the country in March of 1942. And so that's what he did, and he he left uh, the command of the allied troops to General Jonathan Wainwright, But he made Wainwright a promise. He said, I shall return. That was his famous phrase, I shall return. So he goes, Wainwright is left in command. And the expectation is that MacArthur would go quickly and then come quickly back. But days turned into weeks and MacArthur had not made made it back. Weeks turned into months and MacArthur wasn't back. Japanese forces began to advance, and still there was no sign of MacArthur's return. And by the summer of 1942, all hope was lost that MacArthur would return in time to save the Allied troops. And so General Wainwright surrendered to the Japanese. And along with 17,000 other American soldiers, General Wainwright became a POW and was held as Japan's highest-ranking American POW for three years. Many of you have learned about in history class, the Bataan Death March and some of the things that uh, the Allied troops experienced there in Japanese captivity. Can you imagine being in captivity for three years, wondering if MacArthur would keep his promise to return? I mean, how many times must General Wainwright have wondered, can I trust that MacArthur is going to keep his promise? Well, I think that's a a very important question for each and every Christian to ask. It's a a question I think every person has to ask in the Christian life. Can I trust God to keep his promises? Can I trust God? Do I trust that God is working for my good? Do I trust that God has my best interests in mind? Or do I need to secure for myself my own best interests? I mean, let's face it, we are, we are so accustomed in our day and time to promises being made and broken, uh, whether that's from a politician or a parent or a spouse or a friend or a business partner, partner or even a spiritual leader. A lot of us have trust issues. Can I get a witness? Difficult to trust. I mean, we are, believe it or not, in election season again. And this is a good reminder of all the promises that are made in two or three years from now will be a reminder of all the promises that were not kept. We just kind of become so accustomed to broken promises, to doubting that the promise that's made will be kept, we sometimes 
Sometimes that can bleed into our walk with Christ. And sometimes we doubt that God will keep his promises. Sometimes we have a hard time trusting God's faithfulness in our lives. Does God really know what he's doing? Is God really there? Does God really see me? Does God really care about my life? Is God really for me? Sometimes God's promises seem too good to be true, and so we wonder, will he deliver on his word? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, Abram had received a promise from God. It's one of the most central promises in the Bible. It is what Peter in the New Testament would call a, a great and very precious promise. And the promise in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, was a promise to bless Abram. God says, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, that meant that he was going to give Abram children and his children children. And that was a miraculous kind of promise because Genesis chapter 11 tells us that Abram's wife, Sarah, was struggled with infertility. She couldn't have children. And so this is a miraculous promise that God is making to him. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you children. I'm going to multiply your descendants to the point that you're going to be a great nation. Later on in Genesis, he says, look, if you go out and see the, the stars in the sky, I'm going to multiply your children more than the stars that you can count. If you go out to the seashore and you try to count the little grains of sand, I'm going to multiply your children uh, vastly more than the, the grains of sand on the seashore. And this is an amazing promise to bless Abram. It was a big promise. It was a promise that Abram could stake his life and future on. Not only did God promise to bless him and his family and give him a, a, a great nation, descendants, but he also promised to bless the people who would bless Abram. And even more, he promised to curse the people that would mistreat Abram. And he promised that through Abram, he would bring blessing to every nation on earth, that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through Abram and his family. And we know from other places in Scripture that Abram <clears throat> was a man of faith. He believed God. He believed this promise. God makes him a promise. And Abram has this great moment in chapter 12 where he believes the promises of God and with sort of reckless abandon, he takes steps of faith to follow God's calling on his life. God says, listen, I'm going to bless you, but I want you to leave behind your home, your family, everything that you know and love, and I want you to go into a land that I will show you. Now, I want you just to imagine for a moment that you had to have a conversation with your spouse tomorrow and tell your spouse, hey, God came to me last night and told me that uh, I should sell the house. And they're like, okay, what did we eat last night? Uh, and not only that, we're, we're, we're going to sell the house and quit my job, and we're going to leave our families behind. Okay. And uh, where are we going? Well, I don't know. God just said he would show us. Now, how would that conversation go for you in your house? This is a big request. God says, leave everything behind, leave your family, leave your country, sell your home, follow me. Follow, follow you where? Well, I'm just going to show you. You're just going to have to walk by faith. I'm not going to show you 10 steps down the road. I'm going to show you the next step. So you're just going to have to follow me by faith. You know what? Abram was just crazy enough to do it. Abram did it. He, was, he took a big, bold, risky step of faith, something that probably most of us would not be willing to do if we didn't know something about where God was calling us to go. But Abram did it. He stepped out, and you see that in chapter 12, verses 4 and following. He begins to leave his family behind, leave his country. He begins to walk into the promised land. He has been equipped 
with the promises of God. But then almost immediately after he has this mountaintop moment where he gets a promise and he begins to obey and he displays his faith, his trust was tested. That's what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. And Abram is going to fail the test. That shows us that uh, you, cannot, uh, you cannot live off of yesterday's victories in the Christian life. Right? You, you can't. You can't live off of yesterday's victories. Just because you had a mountaintop moment yesterday, just because you had a spiritual victory yesterday, there might be a test today or tomorrow that really puts your faith to the test. That's what happens in the life of Abram. Something happens in verse 10 to introduce doubt into Abram's life. Let's look with, with me here, verse 10. It says this, that there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. Now, I think it's very easy for us to read over that verse, but I don't want us to do this. I want us to stop and pause for for a moment because it's, it's, it's really hard for us in East Texas in 2024 to really understand the significance of the fact that a famine enters into the story because most of us have never lived with food scarcity. Some of you may have, maybe you grew up in a home where you weren't sure where the next meal would come from, but, but most of us have lived with an abund- an over, really an overabundance of food. But this is a life-threatening crisis. To have a famine in that day and time jeopardizes your future. It jeopardizes your life, your family's life. It jeopardizes your future because there's no fast food in the promised land. No, no McDonald's, no Taco Bell. There's no grocery stores, no HEB. Well, we don't have one of those either, but uh, there's no DoorDash. There, there's famine in that day and time means there's not even the ability to grow food. So what you ought to see here in verse 10 is, is a surprise twist to the story. Because in verses one through three, God has made a promise. And what is the promise? Blessing, right? I will bless you. I will favor you. And now verse 10, famine. What about that promise in verses one through three? God made a promise to bless me and my family. I mean, can you imagine being Abram? God, you've called me to leave behind everything I know. You've called me to follow you by faith and to a land that you're gonna show me. And, and you've promised to bless me and to do me good and not harm. And God, I've obeyed you. I've done what you've asked me to do. I've left behind my family. I've left behind my country. I've made great sacrifices for you. And this is how you treat me? You bring me into a place where there's a famine? There's no food? Aren't things supposed to go well for me, right? I thought that God loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. Where's the wonderful plan when famine enters the story? So so this famine introduces a fracture into Abram's faith. There's a seed of doubt that comes into Abram's life as a result of this adverse circumstances that is introduced in a surprising way into his story. You know, sometimes in our life, that's the way life goes. We had a plan and, uh, you know, who was it? What was it? Muhammad Ali says, everybody has a plan until you're punched in the the face. You have a plan, you're you're trucking along, you're, you're believing God for his promises and things are going well and then boom, out of left field, there's some kind of crisis moment. And you wonder, where's God in this? 
Maybe you've even made great sacrifices for him. Maybe God has called you to do something risky or something that cost you a lot and you stepped out in faith to do it and things have not gone exactly like you'd hoped they would go. Your life has not just turned out like you had really planned for it to turn out and you wonder, is God faithful? When I thought he called me to leave, I thought he called me to leave my home. I thought he promised to bless me. Where's the blessing? All I'm experiencing now is famine. And so even though Abram has been equipped with the promises of God, this adverse circumstance introduces a seed of doubt where God's promise is now in question. His faithfulness in Abram's mind is jeopardized. And that seed of doubt develops into fully grown fruit in the next verse. Look what happens in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, it says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Do you see what's happening in Abram's heart here? What has God promised to do in verses one through three? Bless him. He says, no, <laughs> blessing's not my future. My death is my future. He doesn't believe that he's gonna get blessed. He believes he's gonna get killed. So these verses are, in, it's like a, a little unveiling of Abram's heart. It's an unveiling of what he's struggling with here. Here he is doubting the promise of God. It reveals something important about his heart. He's doubting that God is actually going to bless him. And now he says, oh, my wife is beautiful. We're going to go down to Egypt. We've sort of been forced to go down here because of this famine. They're going to see you and Pharaoh's going to take you and he's going to, he's going to take my life. He's going to kill me. What you see here is full-fledged doubt on display. And the truth is, if I'm honest, I can see myself in this story. I mean, it's not always easy to trust that God has my best interests in mind. Now, it is easy to believe when life is easy. But when life is hard, trusting is hard. Am I the only one? I mean, when everything is going swimmingly, it's easy to come and sing praise about the goodness of God and the provision of God. But when an adverse circumstance gets in, introduced into the story, when something happens I wasn't anticipating, when something happens like a famine that's not for my good and it doesn't, I, I don't see any redeeming quality of this crisis, it's much more difficult to wonder about God's faithfulness. It's, it's, it's much harder to believe that God really does love me and have a wonderful uh, plan for my life. You go through a famine and you wonder, is God going to provide? You walk into a dangerous, potentially risky situation like what Abram is doing here with Pharaoh. You wonder if God is going to show up and protect you. You're not sure. I mean, is God still faithful when you get the cancer diagnosis? Can you believe that God is still going to provide for you when you lose your job? What about when your marriage is difficult and maybe it moves from a place of great joy in your life to a place of great woundedness in your life? Is God still good and faithful and will he still keep his promises even then? What about when your life just hasn't turned out like you hoped? Sometimes it's easy to wonder, does God really have my best interest in mind? Is God really for me? Does God really know what he's doing in my life? Abram is not so sure anymore. What you have here is the presence of fear and the absence of faith. And folks, wherever faith is absent, fear will always be present. 
And his fear begins to drive him towards something. Look at what Abram does. His doubt turns into deception. Look at what happens in verses 13 and following. So he says, look, we're going to go down to Egypt. They're going to see, Sarah, that you're so beautiful. They're going to kill me so that they can have you. So verse 13, please say that you're my sister so that it will go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on your account. So when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians indeed saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household and he treated Abram well because of her. And Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves and camels. All right, so if you're taking notes, you can write this down about this episode. The one where Abram does stupid stuff. Okay? This is a terrible decision. <laughs> they ought to have this uh, passage in premarital counseling as a, a word to all future husbands. This is how not to treat your wife. It's like the great theologian Dwight Schrute, you know? I ask, before I do anything, I ask myself, would an idiot do that? And if, if the answer is yes, I do not do that thing. This is that on display right here. Abram does stupid stuff. First of all, he acts deceptively. He says, okay, let's pass you off as my sister. Now, technically, that's a half-truth because Sarah is Abram's half-sister. But there's no doubt in this story, Abram is clearly intending to deceive Pharaoh. And now, instead of being a person whose faith in God translates into faithfulness, instead his doubt in God is translating into deception. And, and now his walk doesn't match his talk. Listen, folks, when you don't live by faith, your actions won't be consistent with your profession. For Abram, a lack of trust now becomes a lack of truth. A lack of faith in God becomes a lack of faithfulness. And he acts deceptively. He is supposed to bring blessing to the nations, but now he's acting without integrity, just like the nations. And instead of in this moment trusting God in this situation to keep his promises, to bless and protect him, now Abram decides he has to take things into his own hands. He needs to manipulate the situation. He needs to lie and deceive in order to preserve and to protect himself because he doesn't trust God to do it. If God can't be trusted to protect you, you've got to do what it takes to protect yourself. And here he gets a step out ahead of God. Instead of simply just relying and remembering, reminding himself of the promises of God, God's going to bless me. God's going to take care of my enemies. God's going to bless those who bless me and curse those who mistreat me. Instead, he says, I will do this myself. I can't trust God to have my best interests at heart, so I'm going to take things into my own hands, and I will lie, I will deceive, I will manipulate, I will make sure I secure my best interests. So he acts deceptively. Then he acts destructively. Think about how he's treating his wife here. I mean, this is example A of how not to be a husband. He is subjecting his wife to danger. I mean, she is being taken into the house of a pagan king, Pharaoh. And the, the Egyptians are not known in this day and time for their virtue and their morality. Right? She is being essentially brought into Pharaoh's harem where she could be subjected to physical or sexual abuse. And Abram is not only the one who's allowing this to happen, he's the one who suggested the plan. 
incredibly destructive behavior towards his wife. And, and then more than that, he's subjecting his wife to the potential of adultery. If she were to sleep with Pharaoh, she would be sleeping with someone who isn't her husband. Even beyond that, in the ancient world, if a, if a father was not uh, available, then it would be the brother of a potential bride who would be the one who would negotiate a marriage and the terms of a marriage. It would be a brother who would negotiate the terms of a dowry. And that seems to be what's happening in this story. By claiming to be her brother, Abram is positioning himself to negotiate the terms of a dowry. Verse 16 seems to reflect that because he's actually profiting from this arrangement. So in the ancient world, if you wanted to marry someone, you know, it wasn't a matter of just putting a ring on it. It wasn't a matter even of asking the father's permission. You would have to come and you would bring, uh, you know, you'd bring X number of camels or what have you, and you would, you would have this dowry to have a wife. Well, well, here by saying, well, she's my sister, Abram is positioning himself to negotiate the terms of that marriage in such a way that he profits and benefits from this arrangement. That's exactly what happens. Verse 16, he begins to accumulate wealth and servants and animals and all of these different things. We should be reading that as a dowry, a marriage dowry. That, that means that what's, think about it, what's happening here is that Abram is essentially treating Sarah like a prostitute, seeking to negotiate benefits that would benefit him personally from her being given to Pharaoh. He's acting like Sarah's pimp you can have Sarah for her beauty and sexuality as long as I can negotiate benefits for myself. Here, here, Abram is willing to sacrifice his bride to protect himself. Reading this story makes me think of Jesus. I'm thankful that we have a different bridegroom. One who doesn't sacrifice his bride in order to protect himself, but sacrifices himself in order to protect his bride. Abraham is an example of what it looks like to not live like Jesus, to not love your wife like Christ loved the church. You can mark this down. When we fail to live by faith, when we fail to trust God, when we, we fail to believe that he has our best interests in mind and we begin to take things in our own hands and manipulate situations and live out of faithlessness. Listen, a, a failure of faith, it, it means that we always end up doing stupid stuff, right? We always end up doing stupid stuff. When, when our lives are characterized not by trust, but by doubt, here's what happens. We begin to live as if there's no God. And if there's no God who's watching out for me, then I have to watch out for number one. If there's not a God who's going to take care of me, I've got to take care of me. If, he, if God's not working to secure my best interests, then I need to take things into my own hands. I'm going to grasp, and I'm going to negotiate, and I'm going to manipulate, and I'm going to deceive, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that I get mine, that I'm protected, that I'm preserved, that I'm provided for, because I don't really believe in a God who loves me and is going to take care of me. And it always leads to disaster. When you live without reference to God, when you live as if God is not really there and God doesn't really love you, so you begin to do what you have to do to manipulate situations and secure your own best interests, it always, always, always leads to disaster. And that's exactly what happens in this story. Abram's deception leads to disaster. Now notice, not for himself, no, uh, Abram's deceptive behavior leads to personal benefit, right? He, he accumulates flocks and servants and wealth, but his deception hurts those he was meant to bless. Certainly hurts his wife. 
He puts her in danger. He says, I want it to go with, well with me. Maybe I'll be treated well on your account. You see what he's doing? He's saying, I'm willing for you to be hurt as long as I benefit. So he hurts his wife, but it also brings disaster on the Egyptians. Look at what happens in verse 17. Verse 17, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. His deceptive behavior leads to a disaster for the Egyptians, and God sends a plague on Pharaoh's family. Now, it's interesting because if you remember back to verse 3 of the same chapter, when God promises to bless Abram, he also promises that he will bless the nations through Abram. You remember that? It's not just a promise of blessing for Abram. It's a promise of blessing through Abram to the world, to the peoples of the earth, to the nations. It just takes seven verses for him to have an opportunity to bless a people, to bless a nation. The first nation that Abram interacts with in the story is Egypt, right here in verse 10. He goes down into Egypt, and if you've read verse 3, I'm going to bless the nations through you. What you should expect when Abram gets to Egypt is that he will be an agent of blessing to the people he's been called to bless. But instead of bringing blessing to Egypt, what does he do? (laughs) Cursing. He brings plagues. This, this one opportunity that he's had, to, the first opportunity to bring blessing to the nations, to live out his calling, to be an agent of God's blessing for the world through his deception and his faithlessness. Now he brings cursing and his deception leads to disaster. You ought to just mark this down. Listen, my sin doesn't just affect me. I've been blessed by God and I've, I'm called to be a blessing to others. You're always blessed in order to be a blessing. But when you fail to trust God and live by faith, when, when your faith doesn't translate into faithfulness, then instead of blessing the people God has called you to bless, you will, you'll bring cursing. You will hurt those that God has intended for you to bless. And when we fail to live by faith and we live faithless lives, folks, it always hurts the people around us. That, that's what you see in the life of Abram, a kind of uh, ripple effect of his sin. One of the lies of the enemy is that my sin just affects me, that my sin won't hurt anybody but me. But folks, mark it down. My sin hurts more than just me. Amen? When I choose to live a life out of doubt, a faithless life where I don't trust God, I don't believe God, and I start to manipulate and live without without integrity and all of these different things, That doesn't just affect me. My sin will hurt my wife. My sin will hurt my kids. My sin will hurt you. As a pastor, my sin, as a spiritual leader in our community, my sin would hurt you, this church family. Sin always hurts more than just you. There's always a ripple effect of sin. And those that Abram was intended to bless have now received cursing instead of blessing because of his lack of faith. Our decisions have consequences. We doubt God and we fail to live by faith. And and when we act with a lack of integrity and taking things into our own hands and manipulate situations in order to benefit ourselves, it always hurts those around us. Think about it. If you have an affair, it might temporarily benefit you. It will hurt those around you. If you cheat in business, that might temporarily bring benefit to you. It will hurt those around you. If you seek power at the expense of of others that may benefit you momentarily, but it will hurt those God has called you to bless. 
Think about that husband. Think about that dad. God's given you a family. You're intended to bless your family. You're intended to bring blessing to your wife, blessing to your kids. When you choose to doubt God and live that doubt out, it won't bring blessing to your wife and kids. It'll bring cursing. That's what we see happening in the life of Abram. When we do stupid stuff, it hurts those around us. That's exemplified here in the life of Abram. But there's another way to live. You can live a life of doubt where, where fear is present and faith is absent, which will lead you to do stupid stuff, will hurt those that God intends for you to bless. Or you can choose to trust God. There, there are two ways to live. You, you can doubt God or you can trust God. You, you can trust that he has your best interest in mind or you can begin to do whatever it takes to secure your own best interests. I want to urge you, to choose to trust that God is working for your good. Amen? To choose to trust that he is good, that he's working for your good, that you can trust him. You can live by fear that God is not really there and not really paying attention to you and doesn't really care about you, or you can live by faith. You can live a life of doubt, which will lead you to do things that no believer should do, or you can live a life of dependence of God, a faithfulness towards him. You can take things into your own hands or you can trust your life into the hands of God. Listen to me. God was worthy of Abram's trust. He, he was worthy of Abram's trust. He had promised to bless him. He promised him descendants, which would mean that his own life, Abram's life, would be protected. He, he promised to curse those who mistreated Abram. If, if Pharaoh had acted malevolently towards Abram or his family, God would have acted to defend and protect, protect Abram. You may ask, how do I know that? Well, <laughs> because that's exactly what God does in the story. Did you see it? I want you to, to notice amid the doubt and the deception, the disaster, God is acting in this story to defend and deliver Abram and his family. Look at what happens. Look again at verse 17. Here, Sarah is taken into Pharaoh's harem and, and the Lord pays attention to this. The Lord is not okay with this. So look what happens, verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why, why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her as my wife. Now, here is your wife, Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. What do you see God doing here? God is defending and delivering Abram and his family. God is at work for their good. Abram had questioned it. Abram was not sure with the introduction of this famine and then the reality of the fact that his wife might have been taken and he might have been killed. Abram was not sure that God was really paying attention to him and his family. But verses 17 through 20 shows us that God was at work. God was working to defend and deliver. He defends Sarah, first of all, by sending plagues on the Egyptians. I mean, God is introducing a supernatural disaster into the household of Pharaoh in order to protect Sarah and get her out of there. God is moving heaven and earth to take care of Sarah's interests. Even when 
Abram failed to protect his bride. God was working to defend his bride. I'm so thankful God always works to defend his bride, aren't you? And then not only does he send plagues on the Egyptians in order to defend Sarah, then he delivers the entire family out of Egypt in verse 20. And they are sent home with all of these uh, flocks and servants and financial goods that they had accumulated in Egypt. Now, by the way, that ought to ring some bells for those of you who know your later history in Israel, because you know, 500 years later, this exact same thing is going to happen with the Israelites in the Exodus. God is going to send plagues, right, to the Egyptians to the point where Pharaoh says, get out. And you remember what the Israelites do as they're leaving Egypt? They plunder the Egyptians on the way out and they're leaving enriched. That's what's happening in this story. It's like prefiguring what's going to happen to the Jewish people in the Exodus. God is keeping his promise here to bless Abram and his family. Do you see that? God is divinely intervening to protect his people. He is taking drastic measures to defend and deliver Abram and his family. Even when Abram could not see him at work, God was working for their good. The same is true in our lives. Sometimes you walk into a circumstances that causes you to doubt God's goodness. Something happens into your life, something introduced into your story that makes you wonder, is God really faithful? And you sometimes wonder about his faithfulness because you can't see him at work. Now, maybe you can kind of identify with Abram who says, okay, well, what about that promise to bless me? Now all I see is famine and I see uh, risk with Pharaoh and it doesn't seem like God is really paying attention to me. Has anybody ever been there in their life before? You're like, not sure if God's really paying attention. But folks, even when Abram couldn't see it, God literally was moving heaven and earth to protect and deliver them. God was willing to send a plague in order to keep his promise to bless them. Do you you understand that in this story, he's actually doing exactly what he said he would do. He is cursing those who mistreated them. He is enriching them. He is blessing them. He is, God, God is moving, working for their good, even when they can't see him. And oftentimes, folks, that is the way that God works. We can't see his activity, but he's working. If you've ever uh, gone out on one of these beautiful East Texas lakes, sometimes on a still day, you'll just notice that the, the water on the surface just looks perfectly still. It's like glass, and it seems like nothing's happening. But if you put on a pair of glo- uh, goggles, if you're you know, at, at uh, a lake that's clear where you can see and you put your head under the water, what you'll see is even though on the surface it looked like there was no activity and nothing was happening, when you come under the surface, you can see that the water is teeming with life and there's all of this activity and there's all of this movement and there's fish and gators and all kinds of other things down there under the surface of the water. There, there is all kinds of activity, but you come back up on the top and it just looks like nothing's happening. That's how God's activity in our life often is. We might not see what he's doing. It may seem as if nothing's happening, but underneath the surface in the, real, the reality of things, he is working for our good. I love the way John Piper put it. John Piper said that at any given moment in our life, God is doing a thousand things and we might be aware of three of them. I don't know why, but that statement is so encouraging to my heart because I might not even be aware of all the things that he is doing to work for my good, but that doesn't mean that he's not doing them. It just means I don't see them. But at any given moment, he's doing a thousand things working for my 
good. And that's exactly what he does here, even when Abram is endangering this. Even when Abram is the one putting his wife in danger. Uh, Even when Abram is doing the stupid stuff, God is still, even in that moment, working for his good. Folks, that's what's called grace. I'm thankful that God doesn't sort of wait for you to have it all together before he works for your good. Aren't you thankful for that? Grace says that God works for our good even when we don't deserve it, especially when we don't deserve it. Paul Paul puts it this way, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of Abram's doubt, in the midst of his deception, in the midst of this disastrous situation, even in that moment, God is working for his good. That's grace. That's what Christ is doing for us in the cross, even while we are rebelling, even while we are doing stupid stuff. Even while we're hurting the people that we should be blessing, even in that moment, Christ is dying for that. And being raised so we can, honestly, there's a picture here of grace in the story. I mean, you think about what Abram's saying to Sarah, I want to be treated well because of you. I want to be treated well on your account. Folks, that's what happens in the cross of Jesus. We are treated well because of him. We are treated well. We are taken care of on him on his account. That is the grace of God. And a God who can work to bless us even in the midst of our doubting is a God worthy of our trust. Amen? That means you can trust him. God doesn't just keep his promises when we're on our best behavior. God keeps his promises not because of anything in us. He keeps his promises because he's the one who made the promise. This is the way Paul put it. When we are faithless, he is still faithful. It means you can trust him. On October 20th, 1944, MacArthur finally arrived on Leyte Island to lead the liberation of the Philippines. He kept his promise. From Jonathan Wainwright's perspective... It felt for three long years as if MacArthur had forgotten all about him. What he didn't know is that MacArthur was over fighting, working, doing everything he could do to get back and keep his promises. Folks, that is how the Lord works for us. Even when you can't see it, he is working to keep his promise. I I love the way D.L. Moody put it. He says, God has never made a promise that was too good to be true. So here's the point of application this morning. I want to encourage you this morning, instead of doubting, decide to trust. Decide to trust. Trust is a decision. And each and every one of us is faced with that decision actually every single day. Downfalls and disasters in the Christian life always begin with doubt. I don't really believe there's a God who is good, who sees me, who's taking care of me. And when you begin to live that doubt out, it, it, it leads to disaster. But folks, you can decide to trust. Trust is a decision. If you've ever seen a trust fall, I'm about to do one. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I did think about it, but I thought, nope, I don't trust you enough to catch me. <laughs> That would be a memorable Sunday, but I thought, man, what a great way to end the sermon, you know, just to do a trust fall. 
But you know, it's always a terrifying moment when you're about to fall. There's this moment where you just have to decide to let go and to release and to fall and to trust. That is the most terrifying experience of your life. But then you do it. And, and Lord willing, they catch you. And then you get up and you're, you brag about your courage, you know. You, you weren't scared at all. Folks, that moment of just terrifying trust, right, that just moment of terrifying release, that's called faith. It's called faith. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you need to make an initial decision of faith to say, I'm going to, I'm going to fall into the arms of Jesus. If he doesn't catch me, I'm toast. But I'm trusting him. This story shows us he's worthy to be trusted. But, but believer, if you're here today and you have done that, you, you know Jesus and you've been walking with him for a while, that's an each and every day kind of decision. You can wake up tomorrow and say, okay, I can decide to live by faith or live out my doubt. I want you to know is that God is worthy of your trust. This is the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter eight. If God is for us, you know God is for you? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that good news? I'm gonna invite you to bow with me this morning. And uh, if you need prayer or you have a spiritual decision to make at the end of the service, I'm gonna be down here at the front. I'm just gonna linger for a few moments. I'd love to visit with you about that. But I wanna speak just a moment for those who might be in the room today on this cold winter morning maybe who have not ever made that decision to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. I want to give you the opportunity to make that decision to trust. To just with reckless abandon say, Jesus, I want you, I want you to catch me. You could just pray something like this. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that I need you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. And I want to trust my life to you. I want to live a life of faith and not doubt. I want to live a life of faithfulness. So Jesus, I hand control over to you. Be my master, be my savior. And I'll trust you today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.